Welcome to the Dharma Spring. Good evening. Hello. Thanks for being here. <laughs> A chilly night. Finally winter, at least for today. So I brought a prop tonight. A prop found its way in. And this one, in general, can be spoken about a lot, and this one has its own story, but I'm going to just focus on a, a segment of it to keep things brief. But first I've got to figure out how to get it out. This is a, um, yeah, it's a Kiyosaku. It's a Kiyosaku. And we have an extra shawl. Do anybody want it to borrow? Um, Kiyosaku can be translated as a, an encouragement stick or even a warning stick. Um, and if you've been to a long retreat, you've noticed it used. It's, um, it's got a different use that we don't use it for anymore. So it's mainly a ceremonial ritual item used. Uh, and again, you mainly see it used at long retreats. So it may seem somewhat familiar. Not this one, but the stick itself may seem familiar to you. And if you've seen those, you'll notice that they have writing on them. So what happens that I'm not completely clear because we have, you know, I, I like these trappings that we have in our culture, our Zen culture, our Chan culture, but as the practice evolves and we bring our lives to it, some things fall away. And um, so this is one of the things that's falling away, so to speak. So I was never really filled in about all of this because it was falling away at the time that I was moving into that, that particular place. Um, but they're given to communities and with or without teachers because Springs Mountain Sangha had a few of these, still has two, and they were there before Sarah was officially a teacher, although she was leading the community in, in her way um, prior to that. And so there's words on there that offer encouragement. And they come, a teacher, a Roshi, I don't know if it has to be a Roshi, but in this case, Roshi, gives the stick over to the community and writes words on it, taking them from an ancestor or an ancestral writing. So there's one that I used to say, digging for earth, seeking blue sky. Something like that. That stick broke. So it doesn't exist anymore. So there's another one that um, Joan made, in it. one for Tenny's group in Tucson, and one lives up in the springs, and it says, this fire runs through all things. And then the springs has another one that David Weinstein wrote upon, and it says, nine times nine equals 82 enter here which he says are words from Dogen but he can't find it he's like I know I read it somewhere from Dogen but I can't find it anymore mm -hmm. so 
you know, like I said, I like the trappings of the tradition. I was, you know, when I became a teacher, there's a part of me going, maybe I'll, I'll get a kiyosaku from one of the teachers or somebody, maybe I'll get a kiyosaku, yay. <laughs> Even though we don't use them the way we used to, but we have retreats here. The retreats we've held here, we borrowed the sticks from up north. So for several years, there was a part of me just wondering and waiting, is somebody going to get me a Kiyosaku? <laughs> um, so somewhere in the last year, after six years or so of waiting, I said, well, I'm going to buy my own damn Kiyosaku. <laughs> um, and like I said, that part of our tradition is kind of fading away. Um, you know, I did think, well, maybe it's because I wasn't, officially a teacher of a community yet. Then I became your resident teacher. And I thought, oh, maybe a Kiyosaku. But again, just like, fine, I'm going to get a Kiyosaku. And ends up I now have two, and that's a longer story. Um, the one that's still at home right now came from China. This one came from Japan. And a while ago, I talked to David Weinstein, our regular talks, and said, you know, I bought these Kiyosaku, and I'm going to send one to you, and I would like you to put words on it, you know, whatever words you want. And I was going to be out there, was out there in October, and I'll pick it up from you when I come out there. So that was that. Uh, sent it off to him, waited months, didn't. I said, wait till I get there, and then I'll find out what it says. And then, that's when he gave it back to me. So rather than, you know, I see the words on there as kind of a blessing. and Maybe that's a blessing upon the community or upon the practice. This one to me is more of a personal blessing because I asked David to do it just for me. But, you know, we'll use it here at retreats and it gets to be your blessing too. So what he wrote upon it is, You thieving phony. <laughs> um, we were, he said... We had been working on a koan that had a, the thief in it, and so that was, you know, that had happened recently. So the thief was on his mind, and there's kind of this—it's a phrase in Zen to call somebody a thieving phony. It can be a compliment to be a thieving phony. It doesn't sound like it, but it, you know, that's an honorific. So when I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that's great!" <laughs> I, you know, I like the insulting. Titles and things, yes, um, because they're fun. Even if they are insulting, I like them. So I don't know if it's insulting or not, but I'm a thieving phony, so it's great. Andrew, is that what the character? Says? I believe it just says thief. I have to ask David. Um, when I looked at it, I said I don't know if I listened completely of what the character says, but I think it just says thief. I will check with him because it's on my mind. <laughs> So, just wanted to bring that along to share. Mm -hmm. But also, by the fact that, you know, this gathering of a group of people happened tonight, is happening tonight, and for the last bit of time, everybody's sitting in meditation in a certain style, you're all a bunch of phonies. So I'm in good company. Um, and that's not a bad thing to be a bunch of phonies. It's 
good to recognize that you are phonies and to appreciate it. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight is that aspect of it. And this really goes to um, you know, the Buddha saying in so many words or so few words, conditioned states, conditioned existence is dukkha, is suffering, is dissatisfactory, all that kind of stuff, that, that feeling, the big meaning of suffering as it's portrayed and uh, conveyed in Buddhism. All conditioned states are suffering, are connected to dukkha and suffering. And a conditioned state is something that depends upon something else. It was conditioned by, think of like the psychological conditioning, Pavlov's dog, the ring the bell and the saliva comes. There's that kind of automatic conditioning we get, but it's also a, a so that thing. This was created because of that, or this was created so that. So there's this thing of dependency going on between, and that's a conditioned state. And as such, it's artificial. And so the meditation practice that we engaged in, it's artificial. It's not how you live your life, is it? You don't sit like that all the time. You kind of took on a different posture, an artificial, fake posture, right? But we can tell ourselves, oh, that's the good stuff. We're supposed to be good in, in meditation. That does something else for me. It opens me up to something. But we're really replacing one conditioning with another type of conditioning. Maybe a beneficial, feeling better place the meditation, but it's still conditioned. So therefore, it's still connected to suffering, if we are to believe the words of the Buddha, which we're not. You have to look into it for yourself and see. <laughs> um, but it's not our natural state. It's not our natural way of being. So you can't stop with meditation practice as that's the end all and be all. That's the place you need to get to. You have to recognize even if it's benefiting your life, even if it's helpful, you have to go beyond it at some point because it's fake and it's artificial and you're a bunch of phonies. <laughs> so am I. We are a bunch of phonies. Because um, you're still... It's like replacing a, a good habit, or replacing a bad habit with a good habit. It's better, you're benefiting from it, but you're still stuck in a habit. Right? Mm -hmm. And then that habit can become the bad habit over time because it gets stale and old and no longer is benefiting you the way it did. So you look for the better one, the better habit. And it's really, in a way, finding a prettier and larger, maybe shiny golden cage to lock yourself in. You're trying to find the best cage possible. <laughs> and so it's good to recognize that, that that's what we're up to here. 
that's not what I should say. That's the activity that's happening here. We're replacing something that's maybe not as helpful with something that's more helpful. But eventually, we must go beyond that. Or maybe not eventually. Fundamentally, essentially, at our core, we are already beyond that. Because the other thing that Buddha's teachings and the teachings of the ancestors in our way say is that just as you are, you are awakened. It's your inherent nature. It's always here. It is your natural way of being. And meditation can help connect us with that feeling, but it cannot be it because, again, it's artificial. And those moments that you know when things go everything's just it's in its right place nothing to fix you you just know there ah, here it is you can't say how you got there you can't say how it was created you have a strong sense that it was never not there right mm -hmm. and then our minds connect it's because of the meditation no because those things happen even before you meditated before you had a practice you still had those moments and even in the midst of the grocery store or traffic, you can still drop into them, or they drop into you, or you drop away from whatever was keeping you from knowing that. Because that's your natural state of being, free, awake. As I was talking a few talks back, like we have three forms of meditation that we engage in, concentration practice, awareness practice, and inquiry, which is the koans. And, um, or the simple warm curiosity towards our experience. And I was realizing, if you get beneath those, those particular practices help connect us with our innate natural being, which is grounded. And that's what the concentration practice connects us to. Being grounded here and present, which is naturally our way of being. And then the awareness practice is open, connected. And then the inquiry is curious and engaged. And that's our natural way of being. Those artificial things help connect us to the natural way of being so that we no longer need the artificial practice the way we used to need it. So then the question is, what, what do you do about this? The first thing, again, is to recognize this is artificial. Replacing something maybe more constrictive and um, not as helpful with something more open and beneficial and helpful. It's a replacement, but it is still conditioned. So recognize that that's what's happening. I don't know if that's the first thing or the only thing. <laughs> because once you recognize that, there's nothing else you really need to do. <laughs> oh. Check in with yourself to see if there was that natural tendency to think, well then, once I recognize that that's what's happening, I need to stop doing that. Well, if you say, I need to stop doing that, you will make a condition out of not doing that. That will be your new conditioned thing. 
It's like saying, I'm not going to have any habits anymore. Well, that becomes your new habit, not having <laughs> habits. So the way out isn't to recognize what you're doing and leave it. In this case, it's to recognize, well, that's how it is. That your field of being, that natural state of being, is vast and wide, and it can include the activity of self-improvement and enhancement and refinement. So you don't need to stop the habit exchanging, you know, what's that? I can't think of the word. Anyway, you don't need to stop the, let me get a better habit, let me improve. You don't need to stop that activity at all. That's natural. It's part of your natural thing to do as a human being. I think the key is when you recognize that that's just a natural thing and you recognize what's happening, there's no longer the need to invest your energy in thinking you're going to finally find the way of being that's going to solve everything once and for all. That's what we're looking for, really. Can I find the right way of being, the right habit, the right way of thinking that will finally end all of this? And we never do. There's always another project, right? So you don't need to change the activity, but just you no longer need to invest your energy into it so fully. Allow it to happen. Be curious about it. Watch it. But give your energy to the more wide, vast, fuller aspect of your being in which that activity is happening, but it's not all of who you are, right? That activity. There's much more and much less. The trap that we get in with the trying to find the ultimate solution goes right back to the beginning of what causes suffering. And those the three marks of existence are woven in here. Impermanence, no self, and suffering is the third. But impermanence, which doesn't mean everything ends only. That's a lot of times people think it means everything comes to an end. Impermanence means things are always changing. It's the nature of life. So if we're trying to get to a state where we can be free once and for all and just go, ah, I've settled it, we're trying to find something permanent. We're going against the natural flow of things. There is nothing permanent. So by giving up the hope of landing someplace, we're joining with the ever-changing nature of things. And one of the ever-changing things is our own nature, this sense of self. It's always changing. It's dependent upon other things. It's not a lasting, permanent thing itself. So that thing we're trying to address and fix and refine and get it right way once and for all, that doesn't work either because it doesn't exist in that way. It needs to change. It needs to develop. It doesn't need to be fixed. But how much energy do we invest in trying to do those very things as human beings? You try to find the solution and get to the place where we can be content and rested once and for all. So we don't have to do that. Allow the activity to, ha to happen, but understand the field in which it's happening. And also understand that the reason that you never get to the place where you feel satisfied, where it feels like there's always something more to be fixed or adjusted is because 
fundamentally there is nothing more to be fixed or adjusted. There never was anything to be fixed. And that's why we can never do it. There's nothing wrong. <laughs> that, I don't know if that makes sense. But there's nothing wrong. There's nothing to fix. So trying to fix it is weird. <laughs> um, but those moments that I spoke of when just things crack through and you're there, you know in those moments there's nothing to fix. Right? <laughs> and in those moments, speaking from the perspective of people who practice this practice, in those moments you have abandoned your practice. Because there's no practice to be practiced there. It's abandoned you, you abandoned it, it's just... So I'm encouraging you to abandon your practice more and more. Um, more and more, abandon your practice. Which doesn't mean to give up on it. It means to not hold it in the same way all the time, thinking that eventually you're going to arrive somewhere or that this is going to solve that or whatever. Hold it that way when it needs to be held that way. But then notice, sometimes you may be holding it and it's gone beyond its use. So abandon it. Which just means release it, let it go. Abandon sounds like a strong word, and that kind of just get our attention. It's really just let it be its own thing. And you might find that you continue to practice. You still do what you were doing, but you're no longer trying to get what you were trying to get out of it before. Maybe you're just enjoying it. You're no longer looking for it to give you something. It's just, ah, this is nice. How nice to be free and know I'm going nowhere. <laughs> Um, it's to recognize that your practice and even the work of uh, self-improvement and refinement and all of that to recognize that it is genuinely artificial. <laughs> Not fake artificial. Fake artificial is when you think it's getting you somewhere. It's artificial, but you're saying it's not. It means something. Let it be genuinely artificial. Let it be what it is. Recognize that it is what it is, and it's not taking you anywhere. But it's just a thing that we do as humans. As playing with those words, genuinely artificial or authentically artificial, <laughs> and that that's not a problem. <laughs> I can feel my own practice, you know, that sigh of relief when it's like, oh, thankfully he's letting me go from trying to think I am offering something that I'm not. <laughs> I'm just offering, you know, my practice speaking, I'm offering this pretty cage with lots of space and you can even slip through the bars if you want it's not even locked but hang out in the cage 
Andrew for a while if you wish. Just because you enjoy it, but don't be confined by it. You can slip through in and out anytime. So the practice itself appreciates being abandoned, to be free, to show you what it's bringing. So play with that. Allow the authentic artificiality of your practice to be there fully. Yeah. See what happens. Thank you for listening. For more about Andrew Palmer and his teachings, please visit bowandroar.com and look for him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.